I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Artificial intelligence is being used in many industries like manufacturing, entertainment, and travel. AI is also being used in the medical field. For example, it helps identify tumors, diagnose forms of acne, among other things. Although we are seeing it more in this field, its adoption has been much slower because doctors don't really want to use it. Qian Yang, PhD student in human-computer interaction at Carnegie Mellon University, works on designing AI that doctors want to use. We discuss the role of design and human-computer interaction in a system that is used to decide if a patient should have a heart pump implant or not. Qian explained the process of observing everything at a hospital and coming up with a solution that uses artificial intelligence and that is used by the doctors of the hospital. Qian Yang, PhD student in human-computer interaction at Carnegie Mellon University, is joining us today. Qian, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Recently, I came across an article that talks about what you're working on along with your advisor, John Zimmerman at Carnegie Mellon. This article is very interesting. It's titled, An Ingenious Approach to Designing AI That Doctors Trust. This is going to be the topic of today's show. But since AI is very broad, we've done a couple of shows about it. But I want to begin by doing a quick recap and get your perspective on artificial intelligence. What does artificial intelligence mean to you? Yeah, um, that is a great question. I think academically there has been a lack of clear definition. But for me, I take it as a kind of a system that takes in information that sends the world and reacts to it. So it's, it's a system of sensing and actuation. And I think for me, as a researcher in human-computer interaction, I'm very much interested and focused on the kind of sensing and actuation, these two parts of interaction. And how is AI different than machine learning? Or what would be the machine learning definition? Machine learning is one kind of artificial intelligence that based on the idea that machines should be able to learn and adapt through data. The AI is a broader category of technologies that covers machine learning and as well as other techniques. For example, microwave is a kind of AI. It senses the temperature, senses the time, and acts on uh, whether to start or stop warming up a dish. So it is a broader category and also a very interesting and exciting field. Since you've been working recently in AI in the medical field, what has been the role of it? Currently in the medical field, I cannot make a conclusion on this, but um, I think it's relatively limited in terms of how its impact. I think the medical field is very much a human-centered environment. And a lot of it, or a lot of the practice was kind of paper and pen based still, and the human contact and the human relationship, the kind of 
bonding between the doctors and patients are still really essential to this practice. So, so far, most of the AI applications are either like medical imaging or in surgery practices, this kind of a part of the medical practice that's less human-centered and less visible to the patients. And like you said, most of it is pen and paper. And even if there are data sets, it's really hard to get your hands on these data sets, right? To, due to privacy reasons and compliance, I assume. Yes, for legal reasons and also for privacy reasons, they're very, for researchers, the access to medical data is very limited indeed. Why do you think it has been slow to see more AI in the medical field? Um, I think part of it is because, like I said, the kind of human centeredness, the fact that there was a very interesting New Yorker comic about this. It's like doctors showing a computer to the patient and ask, if you want a second opinion, you can Google it. You can check it online. Um, (laughs) I think... It's the fact that once you separate yourself from the AI news and all the buzzwords, comments about how AI was taking over healthcare, once you imagine yourself in that scenario, it is actually, there is a lot of human resistance to it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think there are many forms of AI and many forms of machine learning. Like I said, the surgical robots, for example, are really gaining popularity nowadays. And then there are medical imaging, those sort of things that are more CRISPR and also have more of a right and wrong answer to it. Those things are more easily um, being substituted by AI, but for more of a human-centered, especially clinical decisions that are associated with social and human empathy, those those parts of the healthcare system are really... I think it will take some time until we see AI really roots in those parts of healthcare. Yeah. In some examples of images that I've seen are x-rays or tissue to indicate if something is a tumor or not, and acne, right, to identify types of acne are some examples of image. Yes, there are a lot of really exciting computer vision and machine learning applications in that field. Yes, and like you said, we do see AI in these types of problems where it's just about images with labels. But like you're saying, it's going to take time to see it in the decision-making process. And this is actually the part that you've been working on. It's the heart-pumped implant decision-making process. Yes. (laughs) And investigating this. Can you explain what the heart-pump implant is? A heart pump, its medical term is ventricular assistant device, is for end-stage heart failure patients. So when heart failure patients, their hearts are too thick, but they are not eligible or cannot wait long enough for a human heart transplant, there is this heart mechanical pump available to them. So the doctors will perform an open heart surgery, put this mechanical pump inside the patient's heart and the pump will do the job for the pumping bloods over the body do the job for the heart and this is considered either a bridging therapy to like bridging patients until they can wait to get a human heart transplant or it can be a destination therapy 
meaning that it, it means to retain patients' life for a much longer time. And the project that you worked on involves machine learning in the decision process of saying this patient needs a heart pump, this patient doesn't. What makes this a good candidate to use machine learning? Yeah, it is. This is a great question. So the challenge of deciding whom and when to implant lies in the fact that first, not historically, not many, there's some patients who got the implant, but they died very soon after. So there were some evidence showing that there might be some biases or mistakes in those decision making. And also, it is really a impactful, like, life and death decisions. So for doctors who are making these decisions, the pressure is really huge. And they need to decide whether the patients are too sick to survive an open heart surgery. They need to decide whether the patient is too healthy. Otherwise, it just doesn't make sense if you put a mechanical pump in a relatively healthy patient. So there is this critical time window for them to decide. And also for this heart pump, there will be a power line goes out of patient's body and the patients will need to carry a battery with him or for the rest of his or her life. So a lot of the assessment for the doctors to make are whether this person is socially responsible enough that he or she have enough kind of social support to really take care of this battery and this pipeline goes out of the patient's body. So it is a complex decision. A lot of factors come into play. And the idea is that, okay, if we can mine the previous patient's data, their medical conditions, their medical histories, and the outcome of their implant, can we help the doctors make better decisions, better predict whether this patient is an ideal candidate and when is the most ideal time points to do that implant surgery. So that was the kind of the great promise of a machine learning in this space. Yeah. And one of the things you said is for a patient that got the implant and died soon. So in this case, ideally, the system would say, don't give this patient the implant. And it's a good thing that they can live a little bit longer without the pump or that they would save the money from the pump? Yeah, it is. Well, there are apparently a lot of factors coming into this, including both factors that you mentioned. But more importantly, the surgery itself is not a pleasure. <laughs> like It comes with pain. And also after the implant, there are a lot of quality of life compromises the patients have to make. So when the patients decide, okay, I'm going to accept this surgery, accept the compromises for uh, for the rest of my life, they're really expecting they can get a longer life expectancy. So making a better prediction for the likely outcome of this surgery really is to make that compromise worthwhile in a lot of sense. That's one example of the data that you can get that a patient died right after or after certain days. What are other examples of data that can be used for this machine learning system? The data we can access in general are electronic medical records. So the medical history and all the measurements or the medications patients took before or after the surgery. That includes 
patients who did or and did not receive the implant. So the data set is quite substantial, and it's a good quality data set in a sense that there are medical professionals typing in those data. So it is a very extensive data set for this kind of problem. And you have a background in human-computer interaction and UX. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, first I want to ask you, what does human-computer interaction mean? (laughs) It means everything. (laughs) I focus on the interaction between technology and human users. So that is really (laughs) a very, very broad sense. Yeah, I also... so. That includes the systems, the technologies, physical appearance, physical interactions, behaviors, and also what shows on the screen, what sounds that they make, all these factors combined together, I guess, constitutes an interaction. How is this compared with UX, which is user experience, right? I would say, so user experience also is a very broad term, but... (laughs) Most of the times when people say user experience, it's talking about the human factor, human's perception and experience either effectively or um, practically. It's more, it leans more towards a user side of the story. And as opposed to HCI, human computer interaction, we're really talking about two sides of the issues. It's talking about the behavior of the system, of the technology, and also the behavior of the users. So user experience would encompass, for example, if a user finds a UI confusing, a user interface confusing, is that? Yeah, it is considered a user experience issue. Okay. And this, to some people, they might not think it's important, but it is very important. And (laughs) we saw it recently in the Hawaiian missile attack, right? (laughs) Yes. It was due to... Poor UX, right? (laughs) Yeah, that is definitely one explanation of it. And I think a lot of us have similar experiences with computer systems, with menu items. Yeah, and this one was because of the option wasn't a drop down to send (laughs) a real message or a test message. It was in the same drop down. Yeah. (laughs) So very bad UX. And for some things, it might not be as critical like little phone games, but we have systems for these type of things or at hospitals where it might be a dosage amount and things like that. So Yes, exactly. For critical use systems, the user testing might take even longer times than the system development itself because it's the risk is huge in, in these kind of systems. I think there was also an example, I don't remember exactly the name, but it was a machine that would be in charge of giving dosage for cancer patients, I think. But the problem there was that the people that were using it Mm -hmm. gained dexterity or they were typing faster and faster and there was a weird bug that would provide more dosage. I think of chemo, but I'm not really sure, but it was because they were getting faster and faster at typing it because that's what they do all day. Then did, did you know about this? Um, no, I actually haven't heard of this. But yeah, I'm sure this is a quite common kind of problem. Yeah. Let's talk about UX and some of the parts of it. 
I believe, different types of methodologies that can be used. Can you give some examples of the ones that you've used in your work? I've worked on very different kinds of systems uh, that evolves a lot of different methodologies. For the more technical ones, computers, phones, you usually have, like, we would invite people over to do simulation tasks. We give them a prototype, ask a user to do certain things for example you type you type your email you play you try to test your missile alarm <laughs> those sort of tasks mm-hmm. and to see if the users can achieve these tasks those are lab studies there are also field studies meaning that we take users to the real environments where they would use the system i worked in car design for a long while we would have users driving the car and operate their phones and see if they can perform certain tasks, for example, select a song they want to listen to within this restricted attention and all the physical restraints by sitting when they sit in the car. Mm -hmm. Those are field studies. And for the medical studies, I use the technique most often called a fly on the wall. So go to the environments and really just be a fly on the wall and observe what do people do? How do people interact with each other? For that kind of studies, we want to understand really the subtle social components, the kind of personal motivations and their physical environments, their psychological kind of status, these Subtle things that developers or product management teams do not get grasped to when they're far away sitting in the lab. Yeah, and like you said, this was core to your work in the hard pump implant decision making. Let's talk a little bit about that. How long did you visit the hospital? I visited, so, so far, I think I visited four hospitals. Each of them, I have spent at least one week with the advanced heart failure team mm-hmm. that was like starting from like 6 a.m. in the day <laughs> all the way to like 8 or 9 or 10 p.m. So that was roughly, I would say, altogether more than a month observing how people make decisions in the current practice. Did you have to plan anything before going to the hospital or did you just show up the first day and then plan something <laughs> or- it was very much unplanned. I would say, except some logistics and trying to set up access and like data privacy and ethical reviews, these kind of ethical review process before a kind of standard research process. But beyond that, I think for a UX researcher, I go to the field, really try to blank myself and try to wipe away all the kind of prior impression I had about this problem space and try to just absorb whatever I see and I hear and try not to be keep my unpolluted from the literature or common assumption. So it was mostly unplanned and I go out, just follow, I pick a cardiologist who is collaborating with us, our research team, and I follow them away and see how do they <laughs> interact with everybody, what do they do, what kind of technologies do they use. Um, things like that. Was it like those doctor TV shows? Um, yes and no. no. Oh, it is? <laughs> okay, that's cool. Yeah, I found it really, I, I think once you get there, I got more kind of 
empathetic to their problems. They're busy and they try to stay calm towards like very stressful and life and death situations. And、mm-hmm. they use technology just as they do. They use their phones and <laughs> in the workplace, it's not like. They, they they chat with each other to talk about what restaurants do you want to go to after work,、um, yeah. okay. <laughs> and they have apparently have like social interactions between each other, but also kind of hierarchical, kind of boss and junior medical students. It's kind of subtle social dynamics. So those things, I think, once I was exposed to that, I got more empathetic towards the problems they're trying to solve and. Why were they resistant to AI or to computers in general? So yeah, it was very fun and it's very eye-opening experience for me. Why did you find they were resistant to AI? Part of it, I think, it's really a kind of intuitive resistance for anyone who feels threatened by AI or feels threatened by any other person who might take over your job, a kind of career you have built over. Last several decades, I think that's a very intuitive one. And they will say, "Oh no, data can model my experience. I've done this for many, many, many years." So I think that's one part. I actually became very empathetic to that. And then there are also there are really a lot of human kind of complexities there. Like, oh. In, on paper, this patient is married, is in a good,、uh, like has family, has children. On paper, it will look like this person has sufficient social support, meaning that he or she was eligible for the heart transplant. But if you talk to them more, it's like, oh, they're going through a divorce. He or she probably would not. His wife probably would not come over to support him after surgery. Those sort of things are really complicated and very difficult to be captured by any computer systems. So machine wouldn't take account into that. So when we talk about people's trust on AI, we always feel like, oh, people should trust AI. But is it really like? I, I don't think it's always true, and there are. Cases where you probably shouldn't trust AI, you should trust your doctors more because they really understand all the social complexities, the human kind of emotions and life situations there. So、mm-hmm. those are the things that experience observing them taking care of patients kind of sensitized me to that. I think more people once they put themselves into the shoes of those doctors and the patients, they also appreciate that kind of perspective.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, what did you think in terms of the system when you realized that doctors don't really want to use AI because I guess they have an ego and they、yeah. think they're the best and they are the best doctors. <laughs> but what was going through your mind when you realized this and you're like, we have to build a system that uses AI to help in the decision making process, like, and the doctors don't really want to. Trust AI. What made you think? I guess. Well, at the moment, I didn't really think much. I thought, "Oh, this wouldn't work." <laughs> and then I came、yeah. back.、Um, I think kind of the biggest revelation I had when I was visiting those hospitals was that what exactly is the problem? Are like because in AI we talk about in AI research at least humans are kind of source of 
errors, source of biases, source of various kind of mistakes. But are there really that many mistakes, or what exactly is the problem we try to fix? There's no problem to fix, at least based on my observation. So what I thought is, okay, we really need to change our mindsets from applying AI to improve their practice, but to think about what exactly are the breakdowns, what exactly could have led to the kind of some of those poor cases, the, the patients died very soon after implant. So one of the opportunities we find is those doctors in implant hospitals, implant centers are really kind of top of their fields. They know the therapy very well. But a lot of the primary care doctors don't know of the therapy at all. So they would keep the patients at their hands as long as possible and they try many different kinds of therapies until they really couldn't finding any other way to keep the patients alive, they then refer the patients to the implant hospitals. But at that moment, the patients are very likely too sick to survive an open heart surgery. And there is not much decision to make. You either let the patient die or implant him, whatever. Like even if the patient dies soon after, you took a chance, right? It's not much worse than letting the patient die immediately. So those are hard decisions. And if we want to help the doctors, either like both like feel better about doing their jobs, but also really help them making those difficult decisions. I think for me is after that, we took a lot of time to think how exactly can we help with those very few decisions among all of their patients, of very few cases that are difficult, and how can we help them? So I think, yeah, that was the kind of first reaction and the kind of challenge we tried to solve after that field study. Yes, let's talk about that a, a bit more. You're in this hospital observing everything, shadowing doctors. Mm -hmm. You find they don't really want to use AI, but you have to design a system that involves them using AI. And in the end, you and your team make it work. You design AI that doctors are willing to use. What does the solution look like? How did you get them to use it? Or how is this now embedded in the decision-making process? I wouldn't say I have solved the problem <laughs> completely, okay. but one of the solutions we had got quite kind of positive feedback so far is to kind of slide the information in into an automation, into an like office system. We built this tool that's kind of a PowerPoint kind of slide builder, which mm -hmm. automatically extracts data from electronic medical records and makes it into slides and printouts. And this is because you observed in the hospital the process, somebody was building slides, PowerPoint slides for something? I observed that all the difficult decisions were made when everyone is in the rooms. So they have like most hospitals have a weekly meeting. So they pull out only the kind of more fuzzy cases, the kind of gray cases, the cardiologists find a bit not sh too sure about, they bring it to the team and everyone in the room. That's a huge, like 30, 40 people, very experienced healthcare experts. They came into a room and discussed. So that's how they solve the difficult cases. They don't check online or see that they go check the data. But in this meeting where there's 30 to 40 people 
Are they looking at a slide or the data projected on something? Sure, some hospitals have, they will have like secretary person pull out the electronic medical record, which is just a sea of information, a sea of numbers on the screen, which is a bit of a hard work there. So they would discuss. But the idea we had was really, okay, we want to make use of that medium. We want to show the AI predictions at the time and place where they discuss, where they make these decisions. So we built that automatic slide builder tool and the tool automatically generates slides and slides and puts the predictions on the screen. So that was the idea. And this is a very simple, really that simple design. But we got really good feedbacks because nobody gets paid for making those slides and nobody are happy about it because the secretary, nobody gets billed for that service. Patients don't feel that. There's nothing to bill for. And the secretaries are not professionally trained in healthcare or medicine. They just copy paste whatever they had in the system into the slides. And the doctors are like, this apparently is copy pasted by someone who doesn't understand healthcare at all. <laughs> like, why would you make this thing? This doesn't make sense. There's way too much information than what I need. So both sides are not happy. So we built this tool and we had constantly talked to those cardiologists. So we had cardiologists basically customize the slides that has the information, only the information they want mm-hmm. for making this decision and put the predictions there. And the secretaries apparently were very happy about this because yeah. they don't need to do this kind of paperwork anymore. So for us, the greatest takeaway is like automating those paperworks is actually a great opportunity for all kinds of AI systems because all kinds of machine learning systems are rely on data inputs, right? That's actually also what people say when you start hearing, oh, AI is going to take our jobs and <laughs> what are we going to do? But some people say for some of the jobs, people don't even want to do the jobs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's a good thing that AI is replacing that portion. Like you said, this slides that the secretaries had to build were kind of a burden, not really in the job description. It was sort of an extra thing for the decision meeting. So this is a clear example where all this was automated and you ended up just putting the the machine learning number for the prediction. Yeah. Like hiding within the data or, or somewhere in there. I, I haven't seen the design, but... Yeah, exactly. It's really... The design, I think it's less about the tool. It's really about the value proposition. Like, <laughs> I do this crappy work for you. Can you take that information? So, yeah, that's really exactly like you said. It's all about what does the machine do and what does human do. There are jobs and tasks that people enjoy working on. People enjoy taking that burden. And there are other parts of work they would appreciate machines taking over. We're still in the early days of AI applications and especially in the medical field. So I just want to ask you, what are some important factors to keep in mind when designing a system that uses AI? I think if it comes to like one suggestion, I I would say thinking about human factors, thinking about UX early in the AI development process. This kind of like considering user at the beginning of your product design, product development, 
instead of taking it as an afterthought at the end of product development. That's a very like long, well-established mindset in all kinds of product development. But somehow, I don't think it's as common in AI and in machine learning. People still mostly go out and get the data and build the algorithm and say, oh, see, we can do this, and, and then try to find an application for it. I think there are some inherent limitations in that process because you're taking human factor as an afterthought. So I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of value if we can all start from thinking about what human needs and build a thing for them instead of the other way around. That for That's me as an HCI researcher very much taking for granted and I hope there are more people and more, especially data scientists and technologists, taking the same kind of perspective to it. Mm-hmm, definitely. Well, Qian, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It was great chatting with you. Thank you for having me.